Hello and welcome to The Download. I'm your host, Dave Richardson, and we are really pleased to have a topic today uh, that so many of you have asked for us to cover, but we haven't been able to get around to it for a number of reasons. Probably COVID is the best explanation, because Kareem Hamazni, who is the Director of Crypto Asset uh, Innovation at RBC Global Asset Management, uh, has always been gracious to offer his time, but we haven't been able to connect it up. And again, as I as I travel across the country and, and talk to people who listen to the podcast regularly, there's several millions of you out there. Uh, this is the topic that you really wanted us to get to. So Kareem, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Thank you, Dave. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, and wow, you live, uh, you live in an interesting space, uh, the cryptocurrency and blockchain space, one of the foremost experts in Canada uh, in, in this area. We, we, we try to keep these to about 20 minutes long, and you've graciously already agreed to appear again. So we're, we're going to keep it pretty general to start. Let's lay the groundwork around what a cryptocurrency is, what the blockchain is, why are they important? Why do they even need to exist? Uh, and 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 what what's so significant? What can they do that other parts of the financial system haven't been able to do historically? Yeah, that's a great question, Dave. And and to answer that, I want to take it back to a bit more of a fundamental question, and that question is, what is money? Now, this is a question I often ask my family and friends, and the definition I most often hear is that money is a possessed item of value that I trade for goods and services. And of course, I'm paraphrasing here because my friends and family, they don't talk like that, only I do. <laughs> and although that's technically true, it's really not that true today. Money today is mostly just entries in a database. So when you go to the store and you buy that product and you pay for it, your debit card, a message, an electronic message is being sent to the bank and they're updating their ledger to reflect that transaction. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are very similar. You're not passing files around when you send a Bitcoin. What Bitcoin actually is, is a ledger of accounts and balances, just like the bank's database. Now, the difference between the bank's ledger and the Bitcoin ledger is that the Bitcoin ledger is duplicated and multiplied across several computers all around the world. In fact, there are tens of thousands of nodes that run the Bitcoin blockchain. And that's Bitcoin specifically. Now, what this allows, what, what this allows for is Bitcoin becomes this decentralized money system. So you no longer need central banks or entities to keep track of who has how much money. Bitcoin does that in a decentralized way. So the big benefit that some people see with Bitcoin is that there is no central control, meaning that there is no central target for censorship or government intervention and so on. So yeah, we're lucky enough to be in Canada where we have a great financial system. We have banks like RBC that we can trust to maintain the ledgers, but not every country in the world is so lucky. There are, so, there are several central banks uh, that have uh, misappropriated their currencies that have led to severe currency devaluation. And so Bitcoin in certain circles can be seen as, as a bit of a way to sit on the sidelines of, uh, of currency manipulation. But whether or not that's necessarily going to be true in the long term, the jury's still kind of out. There's, there, it certainly helps a lot of countries, but the value proposition to a stable economy like Canada uh, as a currency is still not necessarily there yet. So, so Kareem, is, 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 this a, is this something that you think is 
firmly established? Is this something that you really believe is here to stay? Or, or is this just a passing fad? So you, you, you've, you've articulated the, the, the need for something like a Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, but have we firmly established now that this is something that's going to exist over the long haul, like other asset classes that investors might look at to invest in? Yes, yeah, certainly. I don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle when it comes to cryptocurrencies. It's out there. It's decentralized. Nobody can really shut it down. And so for that reason, it'll continue to exist. New cryptocurrencies or newer cryptocurrencies, I should say, like Ethereum, they offer a lot more than what Bitcoin can do. The Bitcoin ledger just keeps track of accounts and balances and account information is data. But what if you could store other data on that ledger? And that's what Ethereum tries to do. It stores other data like computer code on that decentralized ledger. And so that computer code becomes multiplied and distributed across its network, which means that it too is very tamper proof and censorship resistant. What that means is just like nobody can alter your Bitcoin balance at their own free will, nobody can alter this computer code on the Ethereum blockchain on, on uh, at their own free will. And the promise of that is that you can run these things called decentralized applications. These code sets can be run in a decentralized way on this almost global computer, so to speak. And the execution of that software is reliable. It's, it's um, censorship resistant and it'll run almost exactly as coded. And so the idea here is that you can have these applications that replace intermediaries in global, in global commerce. I'll give you an example to help illustrate this. So let's say I was in a band and I wanted to sell tickets to a concert. Today, I would have to use a firm, like uh, I'd have to use a ticket selling agent in order to sell my tickets. So when a fan logs onto the website, they pay with their payment card, the payment processor sends a message to the banking system and they charge a fee along the way. The bank will eventually rebalance their accounts to reflect the transaction and they charge a fee for their service. And the ticket selling agent will generate the digital ticket and they'll release it to the fan and they too charge a big fee along the way. Now, let's say I wanted to sell tickets on the Ethereum blockchain. I'll draft up a code set also known as a smart contract that states, if somebody sends me 0.05 ether, which is the primary currency on Ethereum, then the contract will execute its code and generate a digital ticket and release that ticket to the buyer. Once I deploy that ticket to the blockchain, that contract becomes immutable, meaning there's nothing I can do to cheat my fan out of payment, and there's nothing my fans can do to cheat me out of a free digital ticket. So when a fan sends enough payment to the contract, the if condition gets satisfied, and the contract will generate and release a digital ticket to the fan. In this instance, the blockchain not only handled the payment, the blockchain handled the whole commercial transaction, including the business logic behind tickets. And you can code these contracts to, to do just about anything. You can have seating, uh, you can have sectioning in a concert, for example, yeah. but also beyond ticket sales, these contracts are being used to create uh, financial applications in a new paradigm called DeFi or decentralized finance. We have decentralized computing, which is a very exciting space where you can, you can manage resources like hard drive space or CPU power and so on, and be able to resell that in a decentralized market and just so much more. And uh, this is the, the, the most, to me, it's the most exciting paradigm of the blockchain space. And uh, what I think has the most room for growth. So, so, so Kareem, 
I, I, I think what's what's perhaps most interesting about that example that you've used is again we've we've disintermediated we've taken out that intermediary the 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 ticket agent and now I'm the band I want to give the best value to my fan who wants to come to the concert I don't want them to have to pay some extra fee uh, I I can go direct and work directly with them it's completely secure and I can take that fee out right I still get say my my concert tickets a hundred dollars I get my hundred dollars that I want as the band my my fan gets the ticket for a hundred dollars there's not a three dollar fee or a ten dollar fee for someone else involved in the processing so it, it actually makes things more efficient you can go more direct um, and and you take fees out of the system it can reduce the cost of the overall system right well in, in actuality there are fees that you pay to the network that, that okay. reward the miners to do the or right now they're called validators to do the work of processing that transaction but the big idea here is that it's disintermediating trust Today, we have to trust several intermediaries to do their jobs for our economies to work. And of course, we're lucky to have a bank like RBC that we can trust. And we have an economy where we have centralized parties that we can trust. But not everyone's so lucky. There are countless examples of where intermediary systems that we trusted have failed us, whether it's central banks that led to hyperinflation in places like Venezuela or Zimbabwe, or whether it's corruption, like we saw with certain governments hiding money offshore with the Panama Papers and Paradise Papers, or whether it's companies like, like Meta and Facebook, which we trusted with their data that used it in questionable ways. Blockchain is the first technology that can disintermediate trust. In other words, we can trust in the immutable execution of code, and we don't have to trust in centralized parties to power much of our commerce today. And this can have some pretty profound implications. Most of the world today relies on trusted intermediaries. And you might not even realize it, but every day you indirectly interact with thousands and thousands of different trust brokers that govern and ensure everything that we do today, whether it comes to food safety, financial safety, you name it. There are trusted intermediaries that we rely on in order to, to, uh, to bring trust to the world. But as mentioned, trust can be broken and has been broken in the past. So the idea is that if you put it in a mutable contract on the blockchain, the code is open source, anyone can review it, so that you and I can do business, we don't necessarily have to trust each other, but if we both collectively trust the contract, then the contract can step in as the intermediary and we can execute our business without having to trust anyone else. So so in, in, some, in some ways, are, is the blockchain even more secure than the traditional financial system in, in some way? Not yet. Um, in fact, a lot the, the question is, does it work? And to the truth, the truth of the matter is not really. Unfortunately, the world of blockchain today is full of fraud. There's it's kind of the wild, wild west. Although there's smart contracts out there with immutable execution of code, how can we trust the code? Unfortunately, there are too many code sets out there that have um, that have poor logic in their execution. They, there have been some significant failures. And to, to be honest, it's really hard to know what you can trust on the blockchain. But that's kind of like the internet in the early days. Yeah. In, the, in the early days of the internet, you had all these pop-ups that were popping up and trying to install viruses on your computer. And you didn't know which websites you can trust. And I remember back in the, when, when I was a kid, my parents said, don't talk to strangers on the internet. But today, I will willingly climb into a stranger's car 
I'll rent out their homes and I'll have them pick my groceries. We've gotten to the point where we can trust the internet. So I strongly believe that we'll get to a point where there are going to be pockets of blockchain, certain decentralized applications that will prove themselves over time and that we can begin to trust more and more. So Kareem, why there, there's so many different cryptocurrencies. Do we do, why do we have so many different current, do we need them? Um, and, and do they all serve a different purpose in some way? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, yeah, we, I, I wouldn't say we need all of them. Um, but, and most of them do serve a different purpose. So Bitcoin is, if you look at its blockchain, it very much is a simple accounting system that keeps track of who has how much Bitcoin. And so it's more just like an asset kind of sits there like gold. Mind you, it's a heavily polluting asset that uses a tremendous, tremendous amount of energy. But nonetheless, it's still just an asset that, uh, that more or less is used for exchange. Ethereum, as mentioned earlier, has that value in that it can run those decentralized applications and smart contracts. Ethereum, however, it is, is a little slow in that it can't process too many transactions per second. It's almost like the dial-up of the internet, and, and we all remember how slow that used to be. So a lot of different blockchain competitors have come out that were looking to increase throughput, increase speed, um, and, and increase scalability to more than what something like Ethereum can do. And so the race is on to find out which standard is really going to be the one that takes over. Ethereum has a lot of advantages in that most of the activity still exists on Ethereum. Some of the best developers in the world are still working on Ethereum. And there is a roadmap to make it better and faster and more scalable. However, that roadmap is several years long. And in the meantime, there could be some other crypto or some other blockchain that comes in that has a stronger value proposition that may start to take market share away and see more adoption. Today, however, the, the cryptocurrency space is really dominated by both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin is still number one and Ethereum is number two. And, um, and there hasn't really been a true threat to the dominance of both Bitcoin and Ethereum. And, uh, and for that reason, I'm still bullish on those ones remaining the top two for the foreseeable future. But substitution risk is everywhere in this space. It's still such a new industry. It's such a new space that you never know what's going to happen. And, uh, and so it's too early to tell. So in, in, in terms of the, the, the way you, you, you get more Bitcoin, it's, it's called crypto mining. I take it as the, is, is the term, um, what is that? What is mining for, for Bitcoin or, or a cryptocurrency? What, what is that all about? And, and you, you talked about some of the energy concerns, uh, and environmental concerns that come out of that. What's that all about? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the Bitcoin network is made up of, of what they call nodes or computers that are spread across the world, and they're all maintaining a copy of the ledger. And what they're doing is they're assembling transaction messages from, from all over the world as people are sending their Bitcoin, and they're putting them into these constructs called blocks. You can think of a block like a page in a ledger. And so a blockchain is, is, is just a series of blocks that tell the history of transactions, but it's really just adding new pages to a ledger. And as you flip back in the ledger, you can see the history of transactions. Now, in order to secure the network, these computers are performing these cryptographic puzzles or calculations called hashes. And they're doing so at a tremendously fast rate in order to make sure that the network maintains its integrity and, and the data in the blockchain or in that ledger cannot be altered. And so you, you can almost think of it like a reverse lottery ticket. Imagine that the winning number of the lottery was known 
and you went to the store and then the machine would spit out a random number for you and you check to see if you won. That's what these computers are doing. The winning number in this cryptographic puzzle is known, but they're trying so they're printing out so many lottery tickets or so many guesses at such a rapid rate to check to see if they won. Now, each individual guess uses very little computing power, but when they're doing a ton of guesses and they're using a tremendous amount of energy and, and compute power to guess as many times as possible to increase their odds of winning this game, then their, their, their computers are working uh, very, uh, they're working at capacity and they're working overtime. Now, computing uses electricity, and so they have to source this energy from somewhere. In the past, there has been more energy sourced from fossil fuels and, and, um, and polluting sources like coal. And so Bitcoin does and did contribute to greenhouse gas emissions. There is a trend that we're hoping will improve over time in that a lot of mining operations are setting up in places close to renewable power. Because whichever miners have an advantage in energy cost, they have an advantage in this global mining game. So we're starting to see mining operations set up in places like northern Quebec, where they have access to cheap geothermal, or sorry, cheap hydroelectric power. And they also have the cool climate, which can cool these machines because they run hot. You have mining operations set up in places like Iceland, where they have cheap access to geothermal power and also that cool climate. But also on, on the flip side, you have mining operations that are moving to countries like Kazakhstan, which use a, a lot of fossil fuels and they have a lot of energy energy generating capacity that's unused. And so a lot of these mining operations are moving there and that's contributing to greenhouse gas. The, the optimal path for Bitcoin is if it does move towards a greener, uh, a greener model, uh, unfortunately it doesn't, it's too early to tell if Bitcoin can truly clean up its act um, and, and become, and not become such a contributor to greenhouse gases. Yeah, and this is a topic I'd like to dig in a little bit deeper the, 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 the next time you stop by. But let, let's let's go back to to you know cryptocurrency from an investment perspective because that I think that's what mo most people um, once they get a basic understanding of, of cryptocurrency start to think about and 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 some of it is you know wow this is this is my my get rich quick you mentioned lottery ticket around mining this is my you know the it, the current cryptocurrency explodes to the upside in terms of price and uh, like Bitcoin has and 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 I can become a millionaire overnight. But it, it, it seems like there's a lot of volatility in the value of cryptocurrency. So, for example, and, and, and I, I, we, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, a lot of people miss the idea that this year, the U.S. dollar index, so the U.S. dollar compared to a basket of global currencies just over the last 12 months has moved about 25% to the upside. It's a pretty big move. That means a lot of currencies have dropped 20 30, 40% against the US dollar. So the, the, the people kind of forget that regular currencies are fairly volatile at times as well, particularly in an environment like we have right now. But, but what, when do you think we're gonna see cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, we'll just stick to Bitcoin. When, when do we think we're gonna see a stabilization around the removal of some of the volatility or is, or is this something that you think is here to stay around crypto? Yeah, that, I wish I had a crystal ball and could answer that question definitively. The, 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 the thing with Bitcoin is that it's gone through so many narratives in terms of what its investment value is and should be. Bitcoin itself, and specifically Bitcoin, has is only going to ever have 21 million units ever produced. 
and there will never be more than 21 million units. And a lot of people have lost their wallets in the past, which means that the actual circulating amount is going to be much less than 21 million. So it's a strictly scarce asset. And so a lot of people tried to tie it to a bit of a gold narrative. There's only so much gold. Well, there's only so much Bitcoin. And they would try to uh, say that the value proposition of Bitcoin is that I can send Bitcoin to Japan in about 10 minutes. But if I want to send a hunk of gold to Japan, it's a lot harder. And so, so a lot of people were, were hoping that Bitcoin would take on a, a value proposition similar to that of gold and become a bit of a hedge against inflation. But here we are in these inflationary times and it did not act as a hedge against inflation. Exactly. In fact, it sold, it traded more like a tech stock and, uh, and we saw tremendous volatility in it. Why is that? Well, maybe there's still a lot of hype around Bitcoin. And whenever there's hype around an investment, there's a lot of speculation around it. Maybe we have to wait until Bitcoin becomes old and tired and yesterday's news before we start to see it stabilize to act more like a hedge against inflation and be more like gold. But that time is not now. Bitcoin is still very young. We haven't ever seen it go through a full economic cycle before. And so we're actively watching how it behaves in, in, this, in these economic times. But the truth of the matter is the investment narrative is not something that we can pinpoint today. And that investment narrative changes all the time. Um, if you do look at a logarithmic chart of Bitcoin, though, you can see that it has relatively stabilized compared to its past in terms of percent swings, um, although it still has major drawdowns. In fact, drawdowns that, that are enough to make you sick if you're overinvested. The, uh, the, the depth of the drawdowns is quite muted compared to what they were in the past. Um, so we are starting to see a trend towards more stabilization, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that there won't be huge volatility in the future. And we're still in very volatile times for Bitcoin. Absolutely. So, so uh, it, it's not lost to me, Kareem, that your, uh, your, your official titer, title is Director of Crypto Asset Innovation. So we think about investing in cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, uh, we talked about the blockchain, so so buying the currency directly today and and trading the currency. Um, what are the ways that that investors can get involved in crypto today? And you know, just pie in the sky, knowing what this could potentially be. Where do you see crypto changing the way that we invest as we go forward? What what where could this go? Yeah, uh, so there are several ways for people to get exposure to digital assets and cryptocurrencies today. Uh, historically, the, there was the direct way where you sign up for an exchange and you open an account and you send them your money and then you trade for crypto and that you hope the exchange stays solvent in the time that you're trading. And then you might withdraw your crypto and hold it in your own wallet. Then you hope that you don't lose your private key. So historically, investing in crypto has largely been a very technical thing. And there have been some high-profile cases like um, Quadriga CX, which happened right here in Canada, or Mt. Gox, which happened in, in Japan, where exchanges got hacked, they lost a tremendous amount of assets, and their customers were left holding the bag. And so we're starting to see maturing in the industry. We're seeing firms that, are, that have launched ETFs that trade on the TSX that got approval from the OSC. They're using custodian technology, which is less, uh, which is more hacker resistant. I can't say hacker proof because nothing in the world is hacker proof, but the private keys are, are 
have adequate assure uh, to me adequate assurances, uh, but that they're not going to get stolen. Um, and and so people can get expose exposure through those ETFs. Of course, there are self-directed trading platforms that offer exposure to digital assets as well. Some for more trusted name, names than others. Uh, so there are several ways to invest. The investment case is still yet to yet to, to to it's it's hard to make a recommendation on the investment case because Bitcoin is so volatile and Ethereum is so volatile and much of it is driven by speculative hype. But there are more secure ways of getting access today than ever before, and I suspect that there are going to be more secure and better ways to access it in the future as well. Pie in the sky, where do I think this is going? Well, blockchain technology and the idea of a smart contract, uh, it's, it's actually exciting a lot of people because you can do things like real-time settlement on chain for tokenized assets. So for example, right now, stocks are maintained by a centralized ledger, usually with the depositories and that we have to trade them on exchanges and so on. Well, with the blockchain, let's say securities become tokens that live on blockchains. You can now have a smart contract that will pair buyer and seller of these tokens so that you don't need a centralized exchange anymore. And that when you hit price discovery, what happens is almost an atomic swap of sorts where the, the, the security is traded for the cash almost immediately. And, uh, and you don't have to worry about settlement cycles and post-trade operations and any of that kind of stuff. And so that right now, the, the, the back office operations, when it comes to stocks trading and, and, and you name it, have a lot of room for improvement. And a lot of people are looking at blockchain technology as being the vehicle that can really improve some of those operations. So, so some. One of the things I, I I heard that blockchain might might be able to to, to do is make um, some more liquid markets or markets that are more difficult for people to access more accessible. Is 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 that something you see coming out of this? Yeah, certainly. Cryptocurrency markets, the public permissionless blockchain world is global. Um, anyone in the world more or less has access to it. Countries like China have tried to ban access to blockchains like like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but to limited success because there's still a tremendous amount of activity happening over in China. And so the, the, the hope is that it will create global markets that anyone in the world is, has access to and, and so on. But that brings with it its own problems. You now have AML concerns, financial crime concerns, issues that you have to deal with. So the idea of an open global market sounds good, but it also has its ugly side that the world needs to grapple with. And uh, we're starting to see regulators start to circle around blockchains and cryptocurrencies because they worry about that ugly side of crypto. And so if I were to have a crystal ball, if regulators are more permissive, especially in North America, this space, then we are going to see true innovation, but we're also going to see some downsides in terms of, uh, of uh, weaker consumer protection, certain scams and certain issues that, that exist on blockchains that are going to affect more and more people. And so, Right now, the jury's out on where regulation is going to go and whether or not this is going to be a permitted space. But if it is, then we can really start to see growth and innovation and we can start to see these more global markets and we can start to see more accessible markets. And uh, you're absolutely right. It'll just increase liquidity because now you have more of a market participating in, in several different securities. Excellent. Well, well, Kareem, this, uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry for, uh, for some of the questions I asked. They come from uh, I, I have to admit, being involved in the investment space, my uh, you know, virtually my whole life, this is still an area that uh, uh, 
I, I guess maybe because I'm older. It, uh, it, 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 it's, not, it's not one that just hits me naturally, uh, something that I understand at, at the depth that you do. Uh, I've learned a ton today. I'm sure the listeners have. So, uh, so thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us. And again, I, I, I do hope we can, we can get you back to dig even deeper on this. Thanks for having me, Dave. I really, I really enjoyed myself. Thank you. This recording has been provided by RBC Global Asset Management, Inc., for informational purposes only, and is not intended to be investment or financial advice. You should consult your own legal, accounting, tax, investment, or financial planning advisors before engaging in any transactions.